0: May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, you'll never guess what my text is going to be today. I don't think I can quite do the actions uh, perfectly, like Alan can yet. But here we are, the uh, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Actually, on Trinity Sunday, we've got to scratch around quite hard in the New Testament to find a Trinitarian formula, placing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together. And here's one of the most obvious, um, though it's a bit odd in a way just to read as as a lesson the last three verses, the yours sincerely, as it were, of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. You'll know since you've been uh, doing a course of sermons that in that letter, Paul is telling those Christians in Corinth a few home truths. It can't have been an easy letter for them to receive, and he underlines it at the end. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. They're admonished by what Paul is telling them. And Paul tells them it's only because he loves them that he wants them to put things in order and not to listen to the false apostles whom they have been honoring unwisely. We don't know who those false apostles were. But chapters 10 to 13 of that letter are all about those false apostles. And Paul, proving that through his beatings, imprisonments, and all the rest, he has the bearing of a true apostle of Jesus Christ. It's not by wonder-working, but by his suffering that he commends himself. And Paul's exhortations apply to churches in every age and at every time. That's why you've been studying the letter We still listen to Paul's appeal for unity and truth. We always need to put things in order, since our churches consist of sinners who've fallen short of God's call to them. We need to live in love and peace with each other, and not to do so is to dishonor God. And as for greeting one another with a holy kiss... Well, our equivalent of that being rather English and European is to share the peace. We shake hands. It's a bit of a poor substitute for kissing each other, but that's how we do it. And what does all this mean today in the context of celebrating your 150th anniversary? What did our brothers and sisters in faith in 1861 face as the problems of their own day when this church was built? And were those problems so very different from those of our own generation? And how does God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very Trinity to whom this church is dedicated, come to our aid in facing those questions? Well, the mid-19th century was a great age of church building, even in Norwich, which had no shortage of churches already. Um... Christchurch, New Caton, Christchurch, Eton, St. Matthew, Thorpe, Hamlet. In this area, as well as Holy Trinity, of course, we ended up with St. Philip's, St. Bartholomew's, uh, St. Thomas's, eventually St. Barnabas, all adding to the ecclesiastical stockpile, most of which still exists in working order today. And if there was ever a time when Christianity seem to be riding the crest of a religious wave in this country, we look to the mid-Victorian age. Not only did the number of clergy increase, the number of churches did too. The Church of England provided the only free education everywhere for the poor, one of the reasons why there are still so many church schools. It was the Church of England, of course, which offered education for everyone before the state made such provision. And in 1851, ten years before this church was consecrated, the Crystal Palace hosted the Great Exhibition. Prince Albert presided over that great celebration of our imperial, or growing imperial, but even more growing industrial power. Many were the men and women then sent by the missionary societies of the Church of England overseas The extraordinary expansion of the Anglican Communion gathered pace just at the time when this church was built. And all that's why Anglicanism is more widely distributed across the world than any other church apart from the Roman Catholic Church. We're not as numerous as some other traditions of Christianity, but we are astonishingly widespread. And this church, of course, was built in an age of rapid change. The greatest change was the transformation of communications, not the computer or the internet, but railways. Not quite so fast, Mr Conductor, if you please, said Prince Albert after his first journey by train. He went at 20 miles an hour. (laughs) He should travel to London from here sometimes now. The speed was frightening. The world was getting faster and faster. And in the midst of all that, it took a couple of years to build this church. And when the building began in 1859, remember, that was the year when Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species. And in some ways, we felt the fallout ever since. The neo-Darwinists, like Richard Dawkins and others have continued to present Darwin's arguments as destructive of the validity of Christian faith. Don't believe them, but that will still be around for years to come. The scientific revolution was well underway when this church was built, and few of the old certainties seemed to be left. And within 12 months of Origin of Species a group of scholars in the Church of England published a book called Essays and Reviews. Hardly the raciest title, almost unreadable now. Don't go and try and find it in a second-hand bookshop, you won't enjoy it. But it led to a massive controversy. These clergy, it was claimed, were not fit to be ordained in the Church of England, since they didn't believe the Bible was the infallible word of God, or that miracles really happened, or that the wicked were punished everlastingly. Indeed, 58% of all the clergy in the Church of England at the time signed a petition of protest against essays and reviews. Astonishing feat of organisation to get more than half the clergy to agree on anything. And uh, the petition declared their unwavering belief in the everlasting punishment of the wicked. There was a crisis of faith when this church was built. And to add to the sense of things falling apart, in 1861 there was a census, just as there has been this year. And it was decided after an agony of indecision, not to repeat what they did ten years before, because in 1851, the only religious census ever conducted in England took place. Every person going to a church or chapel was counted on one Sunday in March 1851. Some were counted two or three times. But even with that, they discovered the majority of people in England did not go to church. It so shocked mid-Victorian England, they never did it again. But it led to the impulse to build churches, as if by building more churches, more people would go. It's one of the impulses behind the building of Holy Trinity here. So when this church was built, it might have looked like a sign of confidence. But it was as much a protest against the times as a sign of confident mission. Christians were anxious. They faced changes, intellectual, moral, industrial, social, religious and cultural, Don't imagine that your Victorian forebears lived in a decade of certainties. Theirs was a time of perplexity too. And even then many people were nostalgic for a more secure past. Remember those Victorian lines written around that time by the Vicar of Brixham, H.F. Light? Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. So let's have a proper perspective on the past and not idealize it. We may have more in common with the Victorians than we think. And if they were anxious when this church was built, how much more anxious are we today? Anxiety seems to be an incurable human condition. And yet it's quiet attention to God, which is required in this anxious age as much as it was in mid-Victorian England. A parish church like this provides a place of quiet attention to God, to listening to his word proclaimed, receiving the sacraments of Christ, being a visible reminder of God's presence in the midst of life. Holy Trinity is a reminder that God is. God is. We don't argue for him or get anxious about him, but we testify to him through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why argument, isn't the answer to Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists. We don't argue for God. We don't get anxious about God. We testify to what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. The greatest uh, philosopher of the last century, Ludwig Wittgenstein, said, not how the world is, is the mystery, But that it is. The mystery isn't a secret. It's something too deep to express in words. The mystery of our God is not explained, but worshipped. And it is to the mystery of God himself that Paul draws attention at the very end of his letter to the Christians in Corinth. Of course, it's become customary simply to refer to those words as the grace. And that threefold formula in which Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit appear in balanced clauses in one sentence provides an elementary relation of the one to the other. Paul speaks of Jesus as the Son of God in relation to the Father who sent him and of the Holy Spirit to the Son. But there's no doctrine of the Holy Trinity described here. Even so, the emphasis upon grace, love, fellowship, expresses a fundamental conviction about the nature of God, which led Christians in the next centuries to explore what their experience of God meant. There's more than a formula here. What Paul says about God himself is linked with what he urges upon those who are members of the Christian community there. They are to put things in order, for God's sake. It's a call at the end for them to listen what he's urged them to do, which includes showing love for the brother they've disciplined, chapter 2, verse 8, being reconciled to God, 520, fulfilling their pledge to the collection for the saints Chapters 8 and 9, recognizing his authority as an apostle. All those chapters from 10 to the end. And living in peace for Paul isn't about the pursuit of individual serenity, but seeking to be at peace with one another in the community. He didn't expect an overnight miracle. Peace within a church congregation is an ongoing activity. It's one you know, because sinfulness, backsliding, doubt, anxiety, and all the rest are present wherever human beings are found. They were in 1861. They are now. These things are part of the human condition. And Paul wants followers of Christ to see these things in the light of who Christ is and what he's done. And that's why Paul rounds off his letter with the grace. One of the uh, most helpful books on the Holy Trinity I read as a young man came from a very unlikely source. Dorothy L. Sayers is better known for her detective novels about Lord Peter Whimsey than she is for her theological writing. Indeed, the clergy at the time found it quite difficult to... uh, take a popular novelist seriously as a theologian, so they got rather sniffy about it. But her book, The Mind of the Maker, can still be found in second-hand bookshops, if you can find a second-hand bookshop, for a couple of quid. Well worth buying. Don't bother with essays and reviews, but buy this instead. You might even get it for 50p on eBay or whatever. And what um, Dorothy Sayers did in that book, which um, influenced me greatly was that she developed her own Trinitarian analogy of the pattern of human activity. She said, well, if God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the very nature of the Holy Trinity must be reflected in a world in which God's image and likeness is found. We take seriously the fact that God's image and likeness is found in all of us. So where do we see the Holy Trinity? And she saw something of the Holy Trinity in the way a picture was painted or a book would be written. As a novelist, she uh, said that if someone's going to write a novel, they must have an idea. The author's got to have some conception of what the book will be about. No one can sit down and write a jumble of words and call that a novel, even if a few do seem composed a bit that way. So then the book has to be written. The author's got to sit down and write it. The creative idea isn't enough on its own. There's activity which brings the book into being. And then once the book's published, others can read it. It has an effect upon them, a power, all its own. Authors even become readers of their own books. So the idea, the activity, the power... That was the bare bones of Dorothy Sayers' analogy of the Holy Trinity. Each is, in a sense, the whole thing, the whole book, a work of art in itself, but so related to the other as to be necessary to them. An idea, activity and power are reflected in God as Father, the creative idea, God the Son, the creative activity, God the Holy Spirit, the creative power in our world. And the necessity of one to the other, say, is illustrated by reference to distorted forms of human life. Some people are full of grand ideas, but never put any of them into action. Oh, we say, he's full of bright ideas. Then there are some people who rush around doing all sorts of things, but have... No idea or plan to guide them. And so they don't have any lasting impact. Activity on its own isn't enough. And then there are those who rely simply on effect. They haven't got an idea. They haven't engaged in much activity, but hope it will all turn out all right in the end. So a weak comedian builds his act simply on the audience's willingness to be amused. And the preacher adds a lilt to his voice when he's got nothing to say. But, but, says Dorothy Sayers, if you bring the creative idea, the creative activity, the creative power together, you see the nature of our Trinitarian God. And if we're made in the image and likeness of God ourselves, there must be some reflection of God's Trinitarian pattern in us. God is like this, only more so. But it only takes us so far. There's something too static about any analogy. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity doesn't exist to make God intelligible. It reminds us that God is more perfectly one and united than we can ever possibly be. And it also teaches us that in God there's a mutual relationship of love which is more outgoing, more perfect, more complete than the love found in any of us. And strangely, that reference at the conclusion of Paul's letter, to the God of love and peace be with you, is the only occasion in the whole of the New Testament in which there is a reference to the God of love at all. It's amazing that that's the only reference. And why? Well, as that great preacher of a past generation, Austin Farrow, once said, God did not send us an explanation. He sent us his son. He did not send us an explanation. He sent us his Son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us the power, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we live in him and he lives in us. I remember someone once saying that the New Testament isn't the report of a committee after some notable events, but more like the crater after an explosion The Holy Trinity is an explosion of love and salvation. And we continue to handle the glorious debris. We ponder what the fallout means. We stretch our minds to understand the continued flow of divine love. We search for analogies. We're not content with incomprehensibility because God has given us minds. But he's given us even more. He's given us Jesus Christ. And he's given us the Holy Spirit. And here in this Church of the Holy Trinity, on its 150th anniversary, our minds, our hearts, our souls still feel the heat from that Trinitarian furnace, which is God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.